0: Well, hey, everybody, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in the third week of a series that called Unto Us that's going to take us right up through next weekend and Christmas Eve. And in, in the conversations in this series, what we're doing is we're exploring the Christmas story as it really happened. Because in our culture, it's really easy to forget how it really happened. And to prove it to you, I have developed a very short four-question Christmas pop quiz. Are you ready? Just pick if <laughs> everybody's like, no. It's all right. It's all right. We're going to do it anyway. So all right, here we go. First question. According to the Bible, how did Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem? Did they A, ride a camel? Did they B, ride a donkey? C, did they walk? D, Joseph walked and Mary rode the donkey. A little chivalry going on there, right? Or E, it doesn't say. Anybody want to get? It doesn't say. It's a setup. I tricked you. All right, next one. Here we go. Uh, According to the Bible, what did the innkeeper say to Mary and Joseph? Did he say there's no room in the inn? Did he say I have a stable you can use out back? Did he say both A and B or D, does it not really tell us? It doesn't tell us. There's no, if you were an innkeeper growing up in a Christmas nativity thing, I just got to tell you, there's no innkeeper. Sorry. Okay, next one. Here we go. Some of you are like, what? I need counseling. All right. Um, number the third one. Which animals does the Bible say were present at Jesus' birth? Was it A, cows, sheep, and goats? Was it B, cows, donkeys, and goats? Was it C, sheep and goats only? Or D, does it not say? <laughs> it actually doesn't say. Isn't that fantastic? Like, it's like we have these images of the Christmas story, but in the end, we we just don't know. And it's fascinating because we hold pictures of Christmas that are more grounded in tradition than reality. And I believe that that leaves us all with this picture of Christmas that's whitewashed and romanticized. And that's why as we approach Christmas this year, what I wanted to do is take a look at the Christmas story as it really happened. Because when we approach it that way, we see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. And it's actually possible to connect with some of these characters in the Christmas story because the characters in the Christmas story were real people with real lives and real struggles. They woke up one day and thought it was going to be like every other day, but God moved in and nothing for them would ever be the same again. And they had to figure out what they were going to do. The things they experienced were as strange to them as they would be to us. And so today, we get to continue our exploration of the lives of the most famous couple on the planet, Joseph and Mary. And as we enter their story, God has moved in unexpected ways. If you weren't with us last week, just let me catch you up. After 400 years of silence, God makes contact with a 14-year-old girl named Mary. Now, she's a virgin, and the angel tells her, that she's going to have God's baby. And moreover, this baby was going to change everything. This baby was going to be a king who would reign forever. And I'm not sure Mary had any idea what all that meant, but she was crystal clear about the fact that God had invited her into an adventure. This is how she responds to the angel. She simply says this. She says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, meaning God is the boss of my life. So may it be as you have said. And then the angel left her. And the angel left her with her thoughts, with a sense of wonder that quickly shifted to a sense of horror when she realized she was going to have to have the most awkward date night conversation ever with her fiance, Joseph. Because for some reason, an angel showed up to me and told me I was having God's baby isn't probably going to play well with Joseph, especially in the first century, or even today, right? Now, fortunately, God dispatches an angel to Joseph as well, because after the aforementioned date night conversation, Joseph decides he's done with this relationship. It's getting too weird. Uh, But the Angel comes to Joseph and gives Joseph some very specific instructions. Says to Joseph, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Which again, I think Joseph had more questions than answers, but he too knew that God had invited him into an unprecedented undertaking. And so if you were to intersect with Mary and Joseph at this point in their lives, And you were interacting with them about what was happening in their lives, they were crystal clear on two things. They were crystal clear that God had a specific path he wanted them to walk. And they were also crystal clear on the fact that the path they were going to walk was not going to be easy. Let me explain. Jesus was born into a nation waiting to be rescued. In the first century, the nation of Israel was ruled along with much of the known world by the Roman Empire. Here's a picture um, of uh, some ruins from ancient Rome. Rome was a global military superpower that ruled from England to India. They set the rules. They levied the taxes. In fact, in Nazareth, the village where Joseph and Mary are living when the story begins, uh, the uh, scientists and archaeologists and historians tell us that the Romans' taxes may have led to as high as an 80 to 90 percent tax rate in that region. So Roman soldiers are walking the streets. They're being oppressed with a tax load. Rome even watched over God's house in ancient Israel, the temple that had been reconstructed by King Herod. Uh, And let me show you another picture here. Uh, You can see the circled area. That's actually a Roman fortress called Antonia that was built to overlook the temple and Rome just out of spite made it just a little bit higher than the temple as if to say you need to remember who really is in control and so in the first century it was a dark time for the Jewish people they believed that God had called them to a specific purpose in the world but they couldn't really pursue that purpose because they were under this oppressive regime they were longing to be rescued But it had been so long since God had spoken, many believed that God had forgotten about them. Many had given up hope. But there were a few, especially in the north, especially around the Sea of Galilee, miles from this little village called Nazareth, who believed that God had promised to send a rescuer, that he himself would send a rescuer to make things right. And the Jewish people called this coming rescuer the Messiah. And the Messiah basically means the one chosen by God to save and lead, not just the nation, but but the world. The word Messiah is Hebrew. It's translated into Greek as Christ, which means, you know, some of you just figured out that Jesus' last name wasn't Christ. That's actually a title. It's not Jesus Christ like, you know, Bob Anderson. It's like Jesus the Messiah. If your name is Bob Anderson, welcome to Keystone. All right, here we go. So here's what this meant. Every time a woman went into labor, especially in the north. In the sea, around the Sea of Galilee, uh, people got excited because there was a chance that she might give birth to the Messiah. And the pain of childbirth brought with it anticipation and hope. Perhaps this baby would finally be the one who would make things right. And so the challenge in the first century, again, especially among those who believe, was to keep the bloodlines clean. There was a constant worry that Jewish girls would marry non-Jews, and in doing so, they would forfeit the opportunity to give birth to the Messiah. Moreover, any questionable circumstances surrounding a birth were seen as a threat to the movement of God through the nation of Israel. Men and women who conceived outside of marriage were seen as working against God. Moreover, the children conceived outside of marriage were sort of stigmatized as illegitimate for the rest of their lives. And so I can only imagine what Mary was thinking as she watched her belly grow. She was simultaneously filled with wonder at the miracle and pain as a result of the judgmental glances of her family, her friends, and her community. And I wonder, how much did she share? How much could be believed? How many times did she overhear people talking about her in the market behind her back? Well, the story kind of amps up as the time for Mary to give birth approaches. So nine months pass, and her story takes another unexpected and uncomfortable turn. And an early Jesus follower named Luke records it for us in his account of the life of Jesus. Uh, we'll pick it up in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It tells us this. In those days, uh, Caesar Augustus—now, he's the Roman emperor ruling from Rome, the most powerful man in the world— Caesar Augustus issued a decree— that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, you take a census to determine how much tax you can collect from each of the regions. So the whole Roman world, England to India, there's a tax. And everyone, Luke tells us, went to their own town to register. Now, what that meant is they went back to their ancestral hometown. And Mary's connected to Joseph, which means they would have gone back to Joseph's ancestral hometown, Bethlehem. And this becomes a key piece of information as the story continues. It says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, that's in the north of Israel, to Judah, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is just outside of Jerusalem, uh, down in the south, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So David is related to Israel's greatest king. And and just imagine this with me. There's a 14-year-old girl who's nine months pregnant, walking 60 miles It would have taken a week. And I know what you're thinking, what if she rode a donkey? If you're nine months pregnant, ladies, do you wanna be riding a donkey for a week? Right? I, I mean, my wife's been pregnant four times. And I'm telling you, she gets nine months pregnant. She doesn't even want to walk through Target. And that is saying something because she loves her some Target. Okay? And so the idea that Mary has to walk all this way. And I can just imagine Mary thinking, God, this is so amazing. Right? A, a virgin birth. I mean, no one saw this coming. And, and, and it's like, okay, and, and, and you did all this and you orchestrated all this. And you have this plan that spans generations. You got her in control of everything in the universe. Holy is your name. Did there have to be a census today, right? I mean, of all the times you're going to call a census, this seems really inconvenient because we're kind of on this special mission for you. I mean, you got to remember, Mary and Joseph were real people. And two days in their walk, I can just imagine them praying, God, we need a break. But what they don't realize is that the walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem is actually going to be the easiest part of their trip. Luke tells us what happens when they get into Bethlehem. Uh, If we can look here. Uh, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, which is a food trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. And if you grew up like me, um, you grew up with church pageant memories, which meant that there was this Candlelit hotel into which Joseph and Mary walked, and music is playing, and they're having wine and cheese in the courtyard. You know, it's like a first-century version of the Embassy Suites manager's reception without all the line, which it was probably great, right? Unfortunately, you know, they get to the front desk and like, you know, what? We're we're, we're full. I mean, there's a the census, so it's really you know inconvenient. But fortunately, we have this great barn out back. We just cleaned it, put out some fresh towels, and um, and it'll be great for you. It'll be a good you know sort of place for you to have a baby. That's the picture that I grew up with and I think many of you grew up with and it's sort of reinforced by these nativity scenes that we put on top of our tables this time of the year. But but that's not exactly how it went down. And here's why. Uh, Scholars tell us there were inns in the first century. They were built by Rome for visiting dignitaries. Uh, But Bethlehem was kind of a podunk little town outside of Jerusalem, maybe 300 people. There would not have been an inn in Bethlehem. Uh, Moreover, the word translated in from the original Greek text is the word kataluma. And everywhere else you see it translated in the New Testament, it's translated guest room. And guest rooms are found in homes. Which brings me to another observation. Remember, this was Joseph's ancestral home, which means either Joseph was born in Bethlehem or Joseph's father was born in Bethlehem or Joseph's grandfather was born in Bethlehem. But in any case, there would be a family compound in Bethlehem called an insula. And I brought an artist rendering of what that would have looked like. It's basically a collection of rooms outside of an open courtyard. And this is how they would live. Generations of the same family living together and doing life together. Moreover, in the Middle East, hospitality is a a primary objective in their culture. And so you just imagine that, and there's a census, and you know you're going to have out-of-town guests, and you even probably know who they're going to be, and you're going to know if somebody's going to come who's really, really pregnant, and you're probably making arrangements for them. And so with that context, I need to ask you the question, why was there no room for Joseph and Mary? I was thinking about it this week. And um, if my family were staying at a hotel and it was a busy time of the year and we were putting the kids to bed and we get a knock on our door and there's a manager standing there and he says, hey, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, And I know it's a really weird request, but we just had somebody that came in and this woman is about to give birth and she needs a bed to sleep in. Would you be willing to move your family down to the lobby and sleep on a couch. And I probably wouldn't, but my wife would have us out the door before you could say boo, right? I mean, she's a better human than I am. But yeah, we would do that for a stranger who was pregnant. Now just imagine it's a family cottage and it's holiday time and you have a cousin who you don't realize is gonna show up, but she shows up and she's really pregnant. Who among us wouldn't give up a bed to a family member? And so after a six day, 70 mile journey journey, Joseph knocks on his grandpa's door and try to imagine this. He's told, there's no room for you here. And just try to imagine with me why? How is that even possible? Is it because Mary is nine months pregnant and she and Joseph aren't married yet? Is it because the family has heard the story uh, and they didn't buy the I got pregnant by the Holy Spirit thing? It, you know, is it because they wanted to punish Joseph? for staying with her, and in doing so, ruining his reputation and even tarnishing their reputation because family was everything in the ancient world. I would argue that, that this still happens, and more than a few of us have experienced something like this because there's a handful of people who, when they think you've screwed up, they'll treat you worse than a stranger. And I think that's what we see going on. I mean, you imagine you, you, enter, you enter the room and it's like there's a record scratch and you feel the judgment and how that works. And I don't even know how you feel it, but you feel it. And it's like, you know, they're thinking, there he is. There she is. I can't believe what they did. And so Joseph's family does what many people would do if their 19-year-old son walked in with his pregnant 14-year-old girlfriend and said, can we spend the night? And they looked at him and said, listen, you can't be here. We want no part of this. There's no way we're going to let you have that baby with that woman in this house. So no, you can't come in. And no, there are no blankets for you to borrow. And there's no towels. We want nothing to do with you. And I think Joseph panics and he's in Bethlehem and he looks around for any place to find shelter. And there's not a lot of wooden structures in the ancient world in Bethlehem. There wasn't a lot of wood. And and so where people generally put their animals was in caves. And here's a picture of a cave from Bethlehem. And so just imagine with me that Joseph thinks, well, I guess it's better than nothing. And so what this means is that Mary probably gave birth to the Savior of the world in a cave. And for his first night on earth, God's son slept wrapped in clothes in an animal feeding trough. And in this moment, friends, we can imagine the real nativity scene. And in this scene, you have Mary, you have Joseph, and you have a newborn baby. And they feel rejected, and they feel alone, and they feel abandoned by family. I wonder, you know, did they feel even abandoned by God? Mary and Joseph probably were sitting there thinking, how can this be? I mean, God, we're doing what you asked us to do, and we're, and we're doing it willingly. And nobody is taking care of us. Our family hates us. I mean, no one even seems to know that this baby has arrived. It's like, God, are you there? God, are you paying attention? God, do you care? And I imagine Mary, 14 years old, sitting there, just covered in just, you know, birth, and, and she's sitting there, and, and she's she's sort of like crying and she's looking at Joseph and she's saying, I want my mom. And Joseph is a guy is sitting there going, I got to fix this. And he has no idea how to fix this. And so then he starts to pray and he's like, God, you can fix this if you want to. Why don't you? Why won't you? God, you're not taking care of us. But here's what's so stunning. God was right there screaming his lungs out. God entered our world in a very human way. The word Emmanuel means God with us. And he will grow up like we grow up. And he will laugh like we laugh. He will eat like we eat. One day he will die like we all someday will die. But his death is a little different because he won't just die like us, he will die for us. But I just imagine Joseph sitting there and after a really bad road trip and a really bad fight with his family, sitting there going, it's, it's really hard, it's really, really hard to believe that God is being good to us and God is keeping his promise in those moments when life falls apart because God showed up in a cave that day and nobody cared and nobody expected it. And all this after Joseph and Mary said, okay, God, uh, we don't get it, but we trust you. And they, they want to think right now, I mean, this, this is not going well. And just the observation, sometimes when you agree to follow God's plan, your life gets harder and not just easier. And and maybe that's a word for some of you this morning. You've sensed that God told you to go that way, and you went that way, and you assumed that because God had invited you to go that way, it was going to be easy. And and one of the messages of the Christmas story is just because we say yes to God doesn't mean things always get easier. And it certainly doesn't get easier for Mary and Joseph, even from this tough moment, because very soon uh, King Herod finds out Uh, Herod is the king of the Jews and he finds out that another king of the Jews has been born and he sends a death squad to kill The babies in bethlehem and the surrounding region and an angel warns them and they flee and then they spend some time as refugees And jesus grows up with this stigma surrounding his birth people from his hometown look at him and think Yeah, we're not we're not even really sure who your father is so just a question, um why do you think God chose to do it this way? And this to me is where we start to find a bit of us in the Christmas story. Why wasn't Jesus born to a family in Rome in the palace or maybe born on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem? Why not born to a family with more influence? Why not to parents who were stronger or richer or more politically connected? And I have a suspicion that leads me to a question for all of us, and, and that question goes like this, what kind of God do you, are you looking for when life falls apart? What kind of God are you looking for when life falls apart? A God who stays in heaven and who talks to you from heaven? A God who can't really, in the end, relate? Or a God who says, I get it? A God who looks at you and says, I know it's hard. I get it. I know, I know what it's like. Here's what's fascinating. The early church grabbed a hold of this. And there's a letter in the New Testament called Hebrews. And in Hebrews, the author says something really fascinating. He's talking about Jesus post-resurrection, like the Jesus who's in heaven now. Here's what he says. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. So in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, is is Jesus. And Jesus is not unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus gets it. He knows what it's like, not just to take on flesh and blood, but to experience the worst that humanity has to offer. And I would argue that that... Beautiful reality is what we need to hear when the bottom falls out. To know that at Christmas, God came among us to rescue us, but at Christmas, God came among us to suffer with us. I made a list. Jesus knows what it's like to lose loved ones, He knows what it's like to grow up in a dysfunctional family, He knows what it's like to be hated by His hometown, He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows what it's like to suffer for doing the right thing. And he knows what it's like to suffer because others did the wrong thing. He knows what it's like to be hungry and poor and misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be surrounded by people and simultaneously carry a loneliness that you can taste. He knows what it's like to be absolutely and utterly exhausted. He knows what it's like to be deeply sad. He knows what it's like to be completely abandoned. Jesus knows what it's like to shout, God, where are you? And Jesus didn't shout this from a manger. Jesus shouted those words from the cross. And it's the same question that, God, where are you? that people like us ask when life falls apart. We feel abandoned. We feel ignored. We feel frustrated. We feel disillusioned. We feel disappointed. We find ourselves sitting in a hospital bed and we're hooked up to a bunch of tubes and they're beeping and it's like, this wasn't our plan. And it's like, God, where, where are you? Where are you? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared. It's the same question that people ask on a visit to the infertility specialist, and they're told that the treatment didn't take again and that this journey to have children is gonna have to continue and more money's gonna have to be spent and more tears are gonna have to flow. And, and to get in the car afterwards and just to say, God, why have you left me without the ability to have children? I, I thought you loved me. I thought you cared. And, and the questions rise. Or maybe your holidays are approaching and it's like the annual reminder that you still haven't met Mr. Right. And you're single and you're going to go to family gatherings and everybody's going to ask, hey, you seeing somebody? You met somebody? Dating somebody and you're thinking, yeah, if I did, they'd probably be here meeting all of you because I knew you were going to ask and I would have forced them to. But no, we don't have that. So let's have some more eggnog, right? (laughs) But God, why, why, where are you? Why have you forgotten about me during the worst fight of my life? Why am I on my own? God, where are you? And I would argue in these moments, and we all have them, one of the most powerful things to remind yourself of when you're holding the steering wheel and the tears are flowing is you need to remember Christmas. Because the message of Christmas is that we don't cry out to a God who cannot sympathize with us. We cry out to Emmanuel. We cry out to the God who came to be with us. And though we don't understand always how his story is playing out for us, we do know that he knows. Because the good news is that unto us a child is born and that child is Jesus. He's God in flesh and blood. He came to suffer with us. He came to suffer for us. He came so that he could look at us 2,000 years later and say, I get it. And this leads me to another thought. I mean, if that is true, if God really came among us as one of us so that he knows what it's like, then he is good. Because the only God who would leave heaven to come among us and suffer for us, that God is by definition good. And if he's good, then he gets it. And he can sympathize with our struggles and we can trust him. Because I'm not sure how we can trust any other kind of God. In the darkest moments of our lives, we must remember when we wonder where god is just like that night seated with his teenage bride or teenage fiance really and and this and this newborn screamy baby joseph didn't see it either but the god is right here and he's good even when circumstances aren't good he may not be what we thought or expected but he's still at work he's still paying attention He's still telling a good story with our lives, and he just invites us to trust him with the next step. Just stand, and I'll close us in prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, this morning in this place, we just say thank you once again for the gift of your son. Thank you that you sent him into a world that was longing to be made right, that was longing to be made whole. You sent him for people who were longing for things to be right, who were longing to be made whole. Thank you for his life, for the model he is for us all. Thank you for his death, his resurrection, and the hope that that brings us for the life to come. But for this morning, we remember that baby in a manger who came among us not empowering glory, but with humility, with grace. So that 2,000 years later, we could understand that against all odds, the unbelievable, undeniable truth is that he knows what it's like to be one of us. And so for friends this morning who are in a dark spot and the thought of going through the next couple of weeks, just, they just don't want to do it. I pray that you would whisper to them how much they are loved that you are trustworthy and that you would give them the courage to move forward with grace, understanding the truth of who you are. And so we bless you, we thank you, we celebrate you, we love you. In the name of your son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.